Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, and I'm joined by my co-host, child and adolescent psychiatrist Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hi, Aaron. And third-year psychiatry resident Dr. Alan Atkins. Hi, Alan. Hi, Aaron. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR School of Medicine. Well, you joined us for a really great show because we're going to talk about psychiatry's dark history in the area of homosexuality. And we are very pleased to have as our guest and honored to have Dr. Marshall Forstein. Dr. Marshall Forstein was in the trenches of the early struggles of AIDS. He has led Harvard's Cambridge Health Alliance Psychiatry Residency for 19 years. He's an associate professor at Harvard Medical School and has been a member of numerous HIV AIDS committees at local, state, and national organizations. He was one of the first psychiatrists to publicly identify HIV as a sexually transmitted neuropsychiatric disease. He began treating persons with HIV AIDS at the beginning of the pandemic and continues to do so. Dr. Forstein is also a musician, playing folk music inspired by the likes of Joni Mitchell. Dr. Forstein, Marshall, thank you for joining us on Let's Get Psyched. Thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. One of the first questions I'm going to ask is, uh, yes, uh, the APA, the, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, declared homosexuality a disorder, and then it was changed. But do you believe there are still clin- psychiatrists out there that are still are there basically in the closet and thinking that homosexuality is actually a disease. I never expect that any group of people, even in the same profession, would agree on everything. So yes, I do think so. I do think we've made tremendous progress in part due to the work of uh, organizations like APA and American Psychological Association, National Association of Social Workers. I think that what you're seeing in the national population, where now something that over 80% of the public believes that being gay is okay, that uh, gay marriage is okay. Um, that's being echoed even a little bit more slowly by the organizations. But we, we still have uh, pockets of people for various reasons, uh, religious groups who think that this is still a, a moral position. Uh, we have... Uh, places in the states where there are certain laws on the books still that um, uh, punish people for certain sexual activities. So I don't think that we're anywhere near completion with training or teaching people how to think about this in a different way. And people's own personal experiences, my experience is that there have been gay people terrified to come out for whatever reason in their family, religion, whatever, who cannot acknowledge their same-sex orientation and may, in fact, internalize that and take it out on other people. And then there was a whole history of psychoanalytic thinking, which we cannot ignore, was uh, putting forward uh, causes and ideologies based on nothing but clinical conjecture. You know, uh, what they did was tantamount to going to a convent to find out how many men were in the priesthood, right? If you go to the people who come to you for treatment because they're not happy with who they are, you're going to decide that that tells you what cause and effect is. And we now know, and and to be fair to the American Psychiatric uh, Psychoanalytic Association, they have moved miles forward. They have redone their um, whole approach to how we think about sexuality as a normal variant. Um, But I would say there are still 
psychoanalysts, psychiatrists, psychologists who hold that there must be something wrong. We'll find out. Okay, which is why I think there's an attempt to figure out the cause, the etiology. Why else would we want to know what causes? We don't ask what causes people to be heterosexual. So I think, okay. so so we started off with our first diagnostic and statistical manual, um, which it's not that embarrassing that they got it super wrong in in DSM one because there were all kinds of stupid diagnoses there. Right. Like idiocy and whatever else. Um, But they they called it a paraphilia. And then in DSM two, it was a sexual orientation disturbance. And then there was this interesting uh, cop out that they invented for the third manual, which was kind of getting us more into the modern era of, of psychiatry, where they said it's ego dystonic homosexuality. That's a problem, which basically meant if you're gay and you're good with it, then we're, we like it. But if you're gay and you don't feel good about it, which it would be very easy to feel that way in a society full of oppression, then probably it's a disease. Right. Um, where, where were you in that? era? Where, where, where did you kind of, which ones of those changes did you experience? Well, I, I was uh, working and I was actually on the committee on gay and lesbian issues for the APA at some point. And we were trying to get people to understand that a period of internalized homophobia, in other words, gay people who had negative feelings about themselves was a normal part of the coming out process because they'd grown up in a culture, a family, a society that instilled in them this anti-gay notion of who they were. People felt defective. Um, Very few families, I I like to tell people that when people are having a baby, an infant, you know, they think about pink versus blue and they've already made decisions about what the gender means by identifying color. Well, I have never met a mother who said, boy, I'm about to have a baby. I really hope he or she is gay. I've never, you know, it's not the go-to way of thinking about this. And in fact, I think the push for etiology is based on, well, if we know that it's natural, if we know that it's biologically mediated, then we won't be prejudiced or homophobic. And I remind people that being female is biological, being black is biological. Well, how, how well have we done with that? You know, So I, I don't buy into this notion that the ideology. I'm as interested in what makes people heterosexual, bisexual, transsexual, homosexual, because I think we don't understand how sexuality develops. We are learning more and more about intrauterine changes in uh, hormonal changes, spikes of testosterone, um, but we're not there yet. We don't have a genetic map that says, you know, if you have five of these eight genes, you'll, you know, that, that scares me, what you're saying. Um, it, it just occurred to me that if we start to understand how sexuality develops, that gay conversion therapy could get a real comeback and could be successful, right? So we, we come from a history in, in psych. I mean, I don't know if we have to own this in psychiatry because some of these were rogue people, but we come from a history of ice pick lobotomies on uh, over 3,000 patients in the 1940s um, for homosexuality. We come from a history of in 1950s uh, delivering shocks to the brain while watching straight pornography as an attempt to to convert. Um, And and the history goes on. 
And if we, you know, if we get better technology, who's to say that people won't be kind of like, oh, let me, let me, my, my kid is, is starting to show some, some signs of being gay. Let me hop on a flight to a country with maybe less regulation and go get this uh, therapy so that, so, you know, so that they can stay in the church or, or whatever. Go earlier, go back to once we had done, if we identified a set of genes in the embryo that were destined to lead people to be homosexual, would we give parents the options of aborting, uh, changing, inserting genes that were heterosexual, assuming we even knew what that was? I mean, we're talking about a really slippery slope of, you know, why throughout the history of species have we had homosexuality? It's not a dominant gene, or we would have a very different distribution in the population. So why does homosexuality appear in every culture, in every, almost every animal species, and has been there in human um, species, in spite of the horrific punishments that people have for being gay or being trans or now whatever, just like we have punished women for being female throughout history by denying them equal rights and vote. I mean, you all know the history of that. I don't need to go into it. But this notion, the drive to develop a, a genetic or biological etiology is of scientific interest, but not political interest for me. What uh, type of um, interaction have you had with uh, these um, conversion therapies and um, uh, were you uh, uh, what, what what happened when you learned about it what did you do did you um, ever see someone that was a, a victim of, of some of these therapies so I I have been involved uh, through the um, American Psychiatric Association on doing conferences and we did a panel um, I also was on a talk show up in the Boston area with a very well-known psychologist in this case, who was promising conversion to people who came to him. Uh, and what he wasn't willing to do was to submit his research to a non-biased group of evaluators. Um, but in the panel, the discussion, you know, I, he would say something, I would counteract, and he would shut me down by yelling and bullying. And finally, I stopped, and I was surprised that the co-host of the, the host of the show, who I had warned about this guy's behavior, I, I said, well, if you're not going to be tell him to be quiet, I will. And I turned to him, I said, I finally figured out how you get people to change their sexual orientation. You yell at them and bully them until they can't say no. And then they go about being who they are anyway, but they tell you what you want to hear. Wow. Is this available for people to, to look up? Um, yeah, but I don't feel comfortable. Uh, you know, it's not my role. This person. My is apologies. Role. Fair, fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. So, so well, you had also, mentioned, I'm sorry. Well, I, I, I think the point here is that we see people still trying to change people for religious reasons. You know, Leviticus tells you that man should not lie with man. It also tells you that you shouldn't wear scarlet or eat shrimp. I think people are listening to some parts of Leviticus and not others for reasons that are interesting in and of themselves. I've treated a number of people who went through what was called reparative therapy, conversion therapy. And I have to tell you about, we have studies now looking at the horrific consequences of young people, particularly teenagers, going to therapists 
who try to convince them that they're straight. All they've been able to do is to decrease their sexual uh, activity and to uh, create horrific self-images and depression. We've had suicides because of this. Um, and I've treated a number of people in long-term therapy who we spent a lot of time undoing <clears throat> the damage that was done by this insistence. Uh, I'll give you an example of, of the dynamic here. A patient of mine who had lost his father at a young age, at nine, and the analyst kept telling him that because of that, he was going to serve as the father-like figure. And so the patient didn't want to um, upset the therapist and told him that he was changing when in fact he wasn't. How did these patients come to you for treatment? Was it that they were you know, unhappy that they had been through this conversion therapy or was it just later in life they were coming to you for other things? Both. I mean, I don't think there's a single pathway. Uh, I have the great fortune of being very well known in the Boston area as an openly gay supportive therapist. Um, people are referred to me by their primary care docs because in Boston, particularly, we have a fairly open environment for gay people. Um, I think people come right after the treatment with a psychoanalyst or a therapist that's homophobic, and they often come to me from religious organizations that they finally give up thinking that they can change. Wow. People know at some point I'm not changing. And so I, I rather get on with living my life and being happy. Um, and so I, I, I've seen uh, people who have had a really hard struggle with reversing the internalized messages they got from therapists. Um, fortunately, there are enough people now active in the community of psychoanalysis, of psychiatry, that are really questioning, you know, how do we treat people uh, ethically, morally, in a positive way. And if you're just joining us, you're listening to Let's Get Psyched on KUCR. And we're talking about psychiatry's dark history with homosexuality. Uh, it's, it, it may not all be bad. I mean, let's, uh, let, let's look at this um, with, as, as, with open eyes. I'm not going to, I'm not just saying this just because I'm a psychologist and I want to be kind to my psychiatrist friends. Um, but let's, but we're honored to have Dr. Marshall Forstein, who has, is a gay man and a psychiatrist and has been on many different uh, APA task force um, has dealt with this and we were just talking about how he was how he's been as he had treated people that had been through conversion therapy and had been uh, traumatized it sounds like um, Dr. Forstein or Marshall I was just wondering um, you know w when you, you talked about training and you talked about the impact of not being trained or not being having knowledge and skills in the in, this, in the area of of treating folks that are exploring their identity or are homosexual or um, exploring just sexual development, what is the, where are we dropping the ball as far as our training? What what do you feel we're we're lacking the most when you look at clinicians' training? Well, I think there are two parts to it. One is that there is so much to learn as a mental health clinician that the question is how the training programs prioritize what is first order, second order, third order. And often, you know, sexual, sexuality courses are elective or non-existent, or they're considered to be unnecessary because you should have had that in college or whatever. But I think most of it is I, um, a kind of fear that we haven't talking about sex. So how do you teach 
and um, really think about sexuality in the broader spectrum of human behavior and uh, feelings if you're not even comfortable talking about sex. Um, and I understand that because I haven't always been comfortable talking about sex, although I came from a family where it was pretty, pretty open. Um, but I know it's not easy for people to learn how to do this, which means we have to spend more time in training, helping people become more comfortable. Uh, so I think that's one thing. And then even if you have time spent on teaching about sexuality in general, there are often not people in certain programs who are willing to be out and talk openly about how to understand homosexuality. Um, women as well as men in those faculty roles need to be willing to step forward and do this. Um, Dr. Carl Feinstein, who we have had on as our show as a guest before, we've had a discussion about this, how there is a lack of this sort of training in tr- in our residency and fellowship programs and how it's particularly interesting for a psychiatry program to have this lack because psychiatry has roots psychoanalytically in discussions about sex and sexual behavior. So at some point it just kind of dropped off the map in training and um, yeah, he, he, he noticed that. I think people who are anxious about things avoid them. And that's what organizations can do, what professions can do. We are, and it's fascinating to me that you can see sex overtly hinted at on TV. You see all sorts of um, eroticization of relationships, but we can't talk about sex. Yeah. Um, the, The conflict between how we live our lives and what we think privately, I think people are afraid of feeling that they're bizarre, that they're unusual, that their thoughts make them weird. Um, that makes me think of something a question that i've had for a long time um in terms of the i want to know kind of the background i've heard the official explanations but i i wonder why pornography addiction hasn't made it into the dsm and 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 with that you know you know and and there's there's answers that you know there's not enough research or it's not you know internally consistent all, all these kind of things. And, and, and as long as we're doing that, it's not getting as much research funding. It's not, we're not able to, to click it as a diagnosis. We're not able to create, um, you know, f- funding for, for treatment strictly for it. Um, and I think the issue when it comes to the gay community from at least as our, as far as I think about it too, is, is like, this isn't just sex. When, when I think of what do, when, when straight people, have a relationship in the cultural narrative they get married and they have kids and they go to disneyland and they have a white picket fence and we have all this great myth american and and global mythology that is i mean you know it's myth i say mythology but it's also real that there's all this beautiful stuff that comes with a straight relationship it's not vulgar it's just love but when gay people get together there's nothing good about it it's just sex right they don't there's no cuddling there's no going to the movies together i think we have a real issue there yes absolutely because homosexuality has the three letters sex in the middle and that's the problem that it's not that's why i talk about same-sex orientation why i talk about love and affection um which is not you know we don't do a very good job of teaching kids how to be affectionate you know, most boys in our culture stop kissing their dads at around the age of seven, eight, nine, 
Um, whereas, you know, girls can have a sleepover and a pajama party. Um, so it's very interesting how even our genders define in some way what we can and can't talk about. I, I think you're right, Alan, that um, we concentrate on the sex and not on the notion of attachments, of love. Um, and, you know, pornography as, a, as an issue in and of itself, it's very complicated. There are as many different types of pornography as one can imagine. Some of it is beautiful and some of it is disgusting, meaning that people get hurt in it. Those are not the same things that we should be talking about and as the same. We need to differentiate. There are a lot of gay people in this culture who grew up learning about how to be a sexual being through pornography. And I'll tell you what, what turns people off the most, because I experienced this as a medical student. We did a sexual reassessment day where we were shown all sorts of sexually explicit films and the film that was considered, as we saw heterosexual, older people, younger people, people with challenge, you know, physical challenges. Wait, this was in medical school? Yeah. Yeah. We had a one day of this and we, we had them look at the films and then we broke up into small groups and talked about the films. And wow. That's amazing. It was amazing. That was very common or more common back in this, you know, the late seventies than it is now. Wow. That would not, I went to Creighton, which is a Jesuit school. That would not. Yeah. That would not but go down. The thing yeah. that I want to say is the film that was considered to be the best film cinematography showed the best affection and relationship between the two people was the gay male film. But the men in the room, because they voted on which parts of the film, you know, was the most, uh, was the best and what was the worst. So you would think that anal sex would be the thing that people would be most difficult to deal with. It was kissing. Watching two men kiss was considered to be the most difficult part of watching those films. That's and this goes back to the seventies. We didn't see people kissing in films. You know? Now it seems to be used as shock value, almost commodified in TV commercials and, and music videos and stuff. There's this kind of like, yeah, you can use two men kissing. And again, it's just them. It's, it's the focus is on them kissing. Oh, look, we're, we're down with the gays. Or it's like, a, it's like an easy right. kind of shock value thing. And again, we, we, we forget about the rest of love. We forget right. about human bonding. It's like the issue of parenting for the uh, gay and lesbian community. I mean, my husband and I adopted two children. Uh, one was a baby when we got him. And people were like, why would you give up the freedom that you have as two men in a relationship to have a child? Why would you take that on? And, you know, it's like, don't you understand that being human is different than what your gender or sexual identity is in and of itself? So I, I think we have a long way to go to parse out you know, where are people's resistance to learning about this stuff? What is the visceral response, which is where we have to really get people to own? Intellectually, people are with us, not viscerally. For the part like you were talking about to make some of this training stick or for there to be real changes, like you're saying, uh, will there have to be some sort of uh, addressing the ten the parenting and also just being accessing your tender feelings and, and just heterosexual masculinity addressed directly? Absolutely. I don't think you can separate out how we think about ourselves as a as a woman, as a man, as a trans person from 
the whole spectrum of things that are part of our life. I have about, we have about five minutes left here. And I, I do, I was really interested when we started this conversation to hear, Marshall, your experience as, um, I don't, I don't know if you were like openly gay at the time of all the, that timeline that Alan was talking about, but your experience going through um, that change in the world of psychiatry and how it pathologized homosexuality. Yeah. So at, let me just, when I was, when I finished college um, and I was just telling a few people in college, because I was just really coming to sort of understand it for myself. So I had some friends who knew me. I wasn't publicly wearing t-shirts, you know, and then uh, I started teaching high school up in rural Vermont. And I had to be very cautious. This is in 1976 to 19, uh, 1971 to 1976. I couldn't be out because it was still not safe for gay people to be out in rural Vermont, um, whereas today Vermont's one of the most progressive states around this issue. So I was teaching high school students, and of course you all know the specter of uh, pedophilia and uh, gay men not being able to you know, keep their hands off anybody. Um, so I was cautious and I would bring kids down from the college gay community, um, two kids who would come down and talk to my seniors about their experiences as gay kids up in college because Middlebury wow. was starting to, to move in that direction. And, and so when I entered medical school, I had five years of teaching under my belt. I was well out and comfortable with who I was and uh, was out in medical school. I came out the first day of medical school, not by any intention, but because one of my friends made a comment and I said, um, yes, I was gay. Um, he was complaining that I was wearing white socks and made this insipid comment that I must be gay because only gay men wear white socks. And I said, no, actually, I'm going running with my friends, but I wear white socks. And he said, what are you gay or something? And I said, well, yeah, actually. And then I left to go run. Nailed it. <laughs> and uh, two women came up to me afterwards and said, you answered that with like total. Yes. Uh, yeah. By that afternoon, everybody in the college, medical college, knew I was wow. gay. I didn't have to think about coming out. It was done. And wow. I, was, I was grateful for that. <laughs> but I also then uh, knew in 1980, when I started medical school, that the nomenclature had been changed in 73. But people's minds hadn't changed. Okay. So we had, we had medical school professors who still carried many of these um, homophobic feelings. And it wasn't mostly psychiatrists. It was all the medical specialties that were not comfortable with this. Um, and it slowly evolved as more and more gay people came out and surprised people because they didn't look any different, act any different than they were. And, you know, I was a good student. I, you know, got involved with volunteer stuff. Um, I think it's, it's very hard to hate people you know well. That's really the message. Yeah. That the, the process of change is personal. You know, I can give up, get up and give a great talk about why people should not be homophobic. But what actually makes a difference from what they tell me is that I'm available to be them, to be with them. That's interesting because, you know, it, when they look at kind of like um, population, population enclaves and their proximity to each other as as how it like relates to racism. So what, you know, uh, really isolated white communities might have different 
uh, racism outcomes than communities that are more intermingled. But with with gay folks, there's kind of like, you know, a natural incidence of that, you know, like you said, a, a normal variant everywhere. And so it's it makes you really question the suppression that would cause it to that would cause there to be regions where people are under the impression that they've never met someone who's gay. I also think, to be honest, I think some people are scared because they occasionally might have a thought that they might be interested. You know, I give the high school kids this dilemma. I said, so you're on a desert island and you have a choice of two, another person to come with you. And based on what your sexual preference is, you will have a choice of taking anybody of that gender that I assign versus somebody of the opposite gender that you get to choose. And it's stunning. They assume that as a gay man, I am attracted to all of the men. And I, I tell people, don't flatter yourself. I have picky tastes too. Um, but I think we have to be human about this. Um, I, just really quick, I just have to ask this question, Marshall. You know, we've been talking about looking at psychiatry, the dark past of psychiatry, specifically about homosexuality. Homosexuality. How do you grapple with being part of the mental health community and this particular dark past? I think our job is to move it to the present and to the future. We, you know, we've made progress in the field of psychiatry. Uh, we have changed attitudes. We have changed the bylaws of organizations. We have, you know, changed some of the uh, treatment planning uh, concepts. We've changed the notion that finding etiology may not answer the questions we wanted to answer. Um, so I'm hopeful that the, the clinical world will catch up to the public, um, but it's going to take work. And I think it all comes down again to the more visible we are and the more polite we are in our interactions, the more we make friends. Um, you know, I, I often ask people, how many gay people have you ever had to ask for dinner? I ask the same thing of my white friends and say, how many black people have you ever had to ask for dinner? You know, it's really in the relationships, which is what we started talking about in the beginning, right? And that's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Today we talked about psychiatry's dark history and struggle with homosexuality. Thank you to our guest, Dr. Marshall Forstein. Thank you, Marshall, for joining us. My pleasure. And also thank you to our co-hosts, Drs. Toshi Yamaguchi and Alan Atkins. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, you can write us at getpsyched on KUCR at gmail.com. And you can also listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform. If you like tonight's show, please follow us and post a review. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. I've been your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched. <laughs>